Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 10, Luna Lovegood. Harry had a troubled night's sleep. His parents wove in and out of his dreams, never speaking. Mrs. Weasley sobbed over Creature's dead body, watched by Ron and Hermione, who were wearing crowns. And yet again, Harry found himself walking down a corridor. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Terkyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Vanessa, about two years ago, I had the most unexpected 30th birthday. I spent it with a group of people. Half of them were my age. Half of them were mostly in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And these were Catholic nuns. It was an amazing event organized by friends of mine called Nuns and Nuns, bringing together Catholic, women religious, and kind of millennial non-religious people, N-O-N-E-S. And it was the most unexpected conversation I had thought we would have. I, frankly, thought I was going to have a nice couple of days talking to some sweet old ladies who had done some weird stuff around chastity, poverty, and obedience, and that, you know, maybe they'd let us come live with them sometimes as their houses were growing empty. But what happened instead was that I met these women who have dedicated their lives to community and justice and spirituality in a way that moved me and inspired me more than anything that's happened to me in recent years. And there's one thing that one of the nuns said that really struck me. One of the millennials had talked about being very inspired by someone. And as she'd finished talking, this particular nun said, just like me. And I thought, what? And we kind of asked her, what do you mean? And she said, every time you say something nice about someone else, you end it by saying, just like me. She's beautiful. He's intelligent. She's so adventurous just like me. And every time you say something nasty or cruel or bitter about someone, he's mean, she's selfish. You say, just like me. And it has just the most powerful impact. It comes up whenever I'm admiring other people who look really hot. Frankly, that's when it really (laughs) comes to use it for me. And I'm like, no, like, I am beautiful too. You know, like, I am courageous too. I'm selfish too. It's been the most powerful tool of humility. And I think that's what so many of these women have exhibited to me in my friendship since. I feel like they have master's degrees in life in a way that I'm still in like middle school. (laughs) That is an incredible, like mind-blowing thought experiment. And my first thought was, I'm not ready for that. (laughs) But like even that, I'm like, yeah, just like me. Like no one's ready. 
But do you know what I am ready for? Oh. On your mark, get set. Go. Okay, so Harry and the gang leave for the train station, but they go in groups, and um, Harry walks out, and there's this old lady at the corner. Oh, my gosh, it's Tonks, who's really great. And um, Sirius has come with them in dog form. And then um, they arrive and onto the train. Things happen. Um, the prefects, Ron and Hermione, have to go away. So um, Harry's like, oh, let me sit next to Neville, and the thing explodes on his face. And then Luna's there, like, Looney Lovegood. No, she's called Luna, and then she's reading something upside down. And then Draco comes and says, like, <laughs> have you been dogging lately? Um, and then they arrive and Harry goes gone. Okay, Vanessa, here we go. Your turn. Three, two, one, start. Everybody is like, serious, behave better. And um, Draco, because he's a prefect, threatens to, he's like, now I can give you detention. And Harry's like, uh, no, you can't. Luna definitely has a crush on Ron. She like laughs way too hard at all of his jokes and like knows who he went to the old ball with. Um, Harry is like pretty upset that he like sort of has no other friends because he has no one else to sit with when Ron and Hermione are in the prefect's thing. And then they arrive and it turns out that they're Thestrals and that they've been pulling the things all along. And Luna is like, you're just as sane as I am, which is like a famous quote. I didn't want to, like, overdo it and be like, you're just as sane as I am. Vanessa, I feel like there's really only one place to start in this chapter as we explore the theme of humility. We meet Luna for the first time. You and I have been, like, counting down to this moment. We love her in very divinity school ways. (laughs) I think it's fair to say. She exhibits so much that's countercultural to our three heroes. But where do you see this theme of humility in relationship to Luna? So a moment that I was curious about Luna and her humility is about the quibbler. You know, Hermione comes in and says, oh, the quibbler, everybody knows that it's nonsense. I think that there are several options for response in this moment. She's 14 years old, and we know that she is lonely, and this is sort of the first time that she's getting to socialize with this new group of potential friends. And so I think that she could say, oh, yeah, I know my dad's the editor, so I read it. She could minimize and distance herself. And instead what she says is just the truth. She doesn't admonish Hermione. She just says my dad is the editor of it. And I think there's a way to see that as prideful. But I also think that there's a way to see that as humble of, Mm. like, I know that my dad works really hard on this and like I'm not going to minimize his effort in a like easy moment of camaraderie. I do think that humility is about appreciating other people's strengths to some extent. And it's about seeing the invisible sacrifices and efforts of others and how we're all intertwined. Humility to me is an acknowledgement that we need other people. I love that. But something about Luna and her relationship to truth-telling really struck me in this chapter. She comes out straight away like, yeah, Padma didn't really like being your Yule Ball partner. You know, you didn't dance with her. Like, she's very unafraid to say truthful things. And I think where I see humility is it's not being used to lord over people. It's not being used to, like, make fun of people or even to undermine people. There's an openness in her sharing of what she thinks of as truth. I really admire people who, when someone else is wrong, can say, here's the truth without making that other person feel wrong. 
Totally. And it almost feels like she is a servant of the truth. It's like, I'm here to tell you the truth, and I am its humble servant. I will tell you hard truths, and I will tell you kind truths. And, like, it is not up to me to judge which you should hear and which you shouldn't. And so when, at the end of the chapter, she's revealing the truth about the Thestrals, you know, you're just as sane as I am, we read it as a humorous line. But there's actually something very generous in how she's saying that. Like, you see the truth just as I do. So much of this book is about vision and prophecy and seeing things. And like, here it is, like she sees the truth in a way that all these other busy, brave bodies around her don't. So I had an aha moment in terms of the Thestrals and this theme of humility. Mm. Something that people will often bring up when we talk about treating a text as sacred is the quote-unquote mistake of the Thestrals, Mm. that Harry has seen death before. Why doesn't he see the Thestrals? And my answer has always been a very technical sacred answer of like, well, he was too young to remember that he saw the death of his parents, so it's not a conscious memory. But I think humility might be a much more interesting answer. I think that something that is almost stereotypically true about young people is that they are unable to understand their own mortality. But the way that Harry watched Cedric die, he is entirely humble in the face of death now. He really understands that it could have just as easily happened to him. And so I think that it's not just about I saw a dead person I now see the Thestrals. It is, I am humble in the face of death because I have witnessed it, and now I see the Thestrals. Once you really see mortality, you can't unsee it, right? Like, that is a mark on you for the rest of your life. And it has gifts, like being able to see the Thestrals. I like that distinction because I think it is different than saying, You know, you have gone through a trauma. Now you get to see things. The Thestrals aren't a gift to those who have been traumatized. It is saying you've learned something and now you get to see things. This is so interesting. It's making me think that humility is like a particular geographic location in which you look at an image. And that you can swing to one side where you're swinging into arrogance and you're swinging into overconfidence. And so you're seeing a skewed image. Or you can swing to the other extreme where you you don't feel worthy, where you you think everyone else is better than you, and you also don't see a true image. And it's in that kind of middle, that humility gives you a perspective on things. And so like, she seems to embody that in some way. Yeah, I feel like the, the time that I hear the word humble most often nowadays is actually during the Academy Awards or any sort of awards performance. Yes. Somebody wins an award and they say, this is so humbling. I am so humbled in the face of that. And I used to always think that that was just performative, that like you've just been given this like glamorous thing and you're like, oh, I'm so humble. <laughs> but I actually believe it. I believe that winning an award can make you realize, oh, my God, I am not deserving of the legacy of this award, and yet I'm also so proud of it that it's, I worked hard. That doesn't make me as good of an actress as Audrey Hepburn. She is a goddess. But it also means that you finally see Audrey Hepburn as a human and not a goddess, right? Being humble is to your exact point. It's about recalibrating. I'm not better than death. But nobody is better than Mm. death. So I wonder if for Luna it was my mom, Mm. who was everything, isn't better than death. So I won't be better than death. 
It's making me think about, you know, we've just had this moment where Hermione and Ron are raised, right? They, they've just received their Academy Award in a prefix badge. But maybe there's also some grappling with their new power and responsibilities, especially as Pansy and Draco are already abusing their power by kind of baiting Harry. Ron's like, well, I'm going to get in there before Draco does. I'm going to hurt his friends before he hurts mine. You know, he's not really navigating this new power with the humility that is needed. Yeah. And the thing that occurred to me was that you would think that the fact that Draco and Pansy, two people who they don't respect at all, have gotten the same award as them (laughs) would be slightly humbling of like, oh, I guess this isn't that great of a thing. (laughs) One person just makes a selection and it's Snape who I don't respect in this case. I think the fact that Pansy and Draco are A, chosen, and then B, allowed so easily to abuse this power would minimize the, like, glamour of the prefect's badge. Anybody can be prefect, even Draco. Also, can we just add this to a chapter of failed pedagogy at Hogwarts? I mean, who lets hundreds of children in a fast hurtling train across space and time be without any sort of supervision? I mean, honestly. And then the supervisors are prefects who've been, there's been no, like, orientation. Yeah. I mean, they get their, like, quote-unquote training from the head boy and girl, but there's no, like, authority, right? Like Dumbledore isn't saying this is our school culture. This is what we believe in. I've been a proctor now. This is my seventh year proctoring. And every year I resent it. But I have to sit through an orientation and like the top deans come and are like, you represent the college on a cultural level. And therefore, like we all have to be on the same page. And as annoying as that is, I also think it's necessary. That's interesting, actually. So like without knowing what to do, it's actually hard to be humble. If you don't know where the line of authority is, you don't know where you can kind of give some grace or be a real stickler. They're set up to fail. Oh, yeah. Ron is basically like, well, I don't want to be Percy, so I guess I'll be Draco. I don't like he has no navigational tools as to how to handle this. What do you make of the moment that Hermione says to Fred and George? Like, yeah, I could give you detention. Okay, so here's the thing I want to talk about, which is the relationship between gender and humility, because there's a couple of moments, and I think this is one. So the twins are kind of like testing their new boundaries with this person who's younger than them, who's like their younger brother's friend, like there's a familial connection, but now has been raised in status and can kind of hand out some form of punishments to them. And I feel like Hermione is having to... Like, she doesn't outright say, yes, I'm going to give you detentions, but she's also not letting them feel like they can get away with anything, right? She's pushing back to some extent, because if she didn't, then that new status would mean nothing. Like, she has to back up this new thing in a way that a boy, I don't think, would. Yeah, it's so funny. We went to synagogue every week growing up, and I only remember one sermon from my entire childhood. And (laughs) God only knows what I was doing in temple that I don't remember anything else. But the one sermon I remember, I was definitely eight or under. And I remember the rabbi talking about how important humility is amongst ourselves as Jews, Mm. that we as a tribe basically need to be humble with one another. But as a minority group, when we are outside of our tribe, that we aren't to be humble, that we need to be protecting ourselves. And I think that a lot of those conversations happen either internally or externally, right, as marginalized groups. Because 
even if you are humble, your humility will be seen as weakness. Exactly. If once you are outside of your group. I think that's exactly right. And I think that's happening right here with Hermione in that she's like, I cannot be read as weak. And so I have to push back. And she, I mean, she navigates this so skillfully because she doesn't do it without risking the relationship. Ugh, Hermione's just so good. And she doesn't do it head on, right? Like she's sort of under her breath is exactly. like, I could. Yeah. Like, just want to remind you, actually, I could. She doesn't say, and I will. Right. You better watch out. But she's just like, yeah, that's right. And don't you forget it. Yeah, exactly. So I want to think about the twins a little bit more. They are the only ones, except possibly for Ginny, who don't become prefects. And they're the ones who are most disruptive intentionally to the school system, right? Ron and Ginny are incredible heroes. And of course, the older kids are as well, apart from Percy, at least for a long time, in fighting Voldemort. But the twins are really the ones who take on the school administration. And so I think there's something here. And this is what, again, I learned from the nuns, is that the more you're elevated in positional power the harder it becomes to actually defend the mission or the integrity of an institution. If you are, you know, the school president, you have to follow the dollars and the fundraising much more than the mission because it's literally your job. If you're a priest or if you're a bishop or if you're even the pope, your job becomes institutional maintenance. Now, if you're a nun, if you're a woman in the Catholic Church, you have very, very little positional power. And so you can have more integrity to the cause in a way that I think the twins are going to have, especially during this book. They stand for what the school should be for and are willing to risk much more because of their humble position. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, arguably, they're not risking as much. That's right. And that part of that is maintaining a sense of nothing to risk, right? Like, I mean, throughout my entire 20s, I completely intentionally did not own things. And so every time I would move, there was no risk. Like, moving took no effort. It was two suitcases. So smart. And now in my 30s, that is long gone, right? But there's more to risk, which means I'm stuck more, which means I'm more comfortable. My books are around me. I have a dog now. So like I have more joy in my life. But it also means that I can't just move across the world because an opportunity comes. There's a real loss in that. And yeah, they're obviously so bright and so able to do anything. If they wanted to be prefects and rule followers, they could have been. They have made this choice. Right. Exactly. So, Casper, we don't usually do this, but I I would like to go back to sort of the beginning of the chapter. Yeah. So it says very early in the chapter that Harry feels so excited because he really is going back to Hogwarts. Right. And it seems almost as if the way it's written that he didn't believe it until the day that they're leaving. He's really going to get to go back. Which is a very humble thought. Every other student just all summer is like, I'm going back to Hogwarts this fall. Just another day. Right. And because it was taken away from Harry, he has this newfound humility and appreciation Mm. that he probably hasn't had since year one that he gets to go back to Hogwarts. And it just occurred to me that humility comes from perspective, again, to the point you made earlier. And... I think the humility also leads to gratitude because I think Harry has realized that going to Hogwarts is a privilege, not a right. And it's not something he is entitled to. Just like none of us are like entitled to water coming out of the faucet, right? right? Like that is contingent upon rainfall and pipes and plumbers and so many things that I can't even think of all of them. 
And I think we don't intentionally cultivate enough of a sense of humility to be grateful for the tiny millions of miracles that make our lives possible. And I think that Harry's clear humility in this moment, I think, is going to just make him more grateful for his time at Hogwarts in general. And I just think we should we should all be more grateful all the time. I know I should be. Yeah, I mean, that's what I love about like humility as a practice, right? It's not just a, a fleeting feeling. There's so many ways in which spiritual traditions try to cultivate that sense of humility, that sense of right-sizedness in the world. Just like me. Right, exactly. Like, that's something that you can say over and over to yourself until, like, it just becomes a way of looking at the world. I mean, and what's beautiful about it is that everything that's nice that happens is like a gift rather than an expectation. But that takes incredible discipline and in a cultivation for that to for that to happen. But that's what really struck me about these nuns was that, you know, if you make a vow of poverty, which is not to say that you're going to live without access to decent food and, and living, but it's about giving up your right, your ownership of private property, right? Saying that I will put into communal ownership the things that were previously mine and to try and live simply with what I need, not what I greed, you know, um, I don't do that, but I, I, there's something in me that, that knows that that kind of life would offer perhaps even more riches than what I have now. I mean, like, the question is what prevents us from doing those yeah. things? I know that I, like, should be out on the streets yelling about teachers' wages every day. Is it a lack of humility? Have I just, like, entirely digested I am somehow more entitled to my money than that other person? I like to think that it's fear, but I don't know what prevents me from being that person. I mean, I think this chapter has so much to say about that, right? If you live that way, you get called loony lovegood, right? There's real loss associated with status and what, what people think of you with how society treats you. And frankly, if you become too dangerous, you get killed, right? That happens to Martin Luther King. It happens to Gandhi. It happens to Jesus. If you stand up in a way and point out the inequality in a way that really threatens dominant systems, you're going to get taken out. And if you do it in an isolated way, you also don't get taken seriously. Right. So it's like, what good is it actually doing, right? And that's, I think, the question that's super painful is like, it's still the right thing. Yeah. And like, I'm just too scared to do it. Yeah. For good reasons, right? People depend on me or what about my partner? And if you have kids, I mean, my goodness, it's an impossible choice. But it, it makes me respect Luna all the more, even if at this point in her like adult development, she's still kind of doing it because her parents have done it. But there's just something so disarming about Luna's presence that shifts the whole conversation of this book, which I, I just love that. Vanessa, this week we're continuing with Lectio Divina. And in fact, this is our final time for a little while. Inside, I'm crying. This is the sentence I found. Loads of stuff, said Neville proudly. So step one is orienting ourselves in the narrative of, of the chapter. What's happening when Neville says proudly? Loads of stuff. Does Harry ask him what he did this summer? Close. Neville's really excited oh, about, about his plant. plant. I do know the answer. Neville, like, proudly shows everybody his, like, new plant. And Harry is like, I don't get what's so great about that. It looks like a not even that pretty plant. And can it do something, Neville? And Neville's like, yes! Loads of stuff. 
I love that it's called a mimbulous mimbletonia. <laughs> Is there anything more Neville out there than that? I don't know. Yes, 10 points for you. Well, eight points because I needed a minute. So stage two of Lectio is to start to think allegorically. What images or stories or songs does this remind us of? Loads of stuff, said Neville proudly. What does it remind you of? This is probably too meta, but it reminds me of treating something as sacred. Ooh. So I just saw the movie A Star is Born, and I'm obsessed with it. And I've been talking to all my friends about it, and there are like, fair criticisms of this movie. But because I'm so trained in treating things as sacred, any problem with the movie, I can immediately justify and be like, no, that actually makes it even more interesting. And here's why. And maybe this and maybe that. And I think that like Neville's treating this plant as sacred and he's like, it can do so much To such an extent that he, like, doesn't even see the ugliness of the plant. Like, he only sees the beauty in it. What about you? Yeah, I'm feeling like this is a classic kind of nerd moment. And, you know, Neville's been probably on his own for most of the summer, right? We know that he doesn't have siblings. We know that he's not maybe the most socially skilled person at this stage of his development. And so the moment someone shows any interest, and literally the question that Harry asks is, does it uh, do anything? (laughs) (laughs) Which is not like the kind of prompt that you would really go in with. But like he can't help himself. He's like, yes, it's amazing. Actually, there's something very humble about this. Like like he is trying to impress or he's trying to convince Harry that it's interesting and worth his attention. But he's not trying to be cool about it. He's kind of like Hagrid with all of these like dangerous and weird and often unfortunate smelling animals. This is exactly the same. Like Neville is doing it with plants. Well, and he's exactly like Harry is with Quidditch, right? Like, yes, it's just that there are certain things that are culturally cool to be nerds about. And that there are other things that aren't. My brothers are so into sports. It is ridiculous. David and Jonathan, if you are listening, you are ridiculous. They own so much paraphernalia for their teams and like get into a sad mood if their team loses. But for some reason, it's, like, cool to be a sports fan. And then it's like, oh, you're such a nerd for loving Jane Eyre or something. And it's like, you know, we all just love the things we love. Okay, but I just had a breakthrough because of what you said. Sports so often is the means for men to have a conversation with each other. Like, Harry and Neville are friends, but, like, have they ever had a meaningful chat about anything? Is this Neville trying to find a way into, like, building his friendship with Harry? Yeah, he's like, you and I can garden together. Okay, Step three is to ask, how does this passage remind us of something in our own lives? And I'll just read it one more time. Loads of stuff, said Neville proudly. So I just think that, like, this reminds me of me in every sense of my life. I'm a kid who, like, would become obsessed with things and, like, not understand that other people weren't obsessed with it. So, like, I got really into Doris Day when I was, like, six and then watched every Doris Day movie. And this is, like, not what other girls were doing during sleepovers. I just didn't understand that it was, like, weird to love the things that I loved. And then my entire, entire first-grade class was in the Brownies, which is, like, the junior level of Girl Scouts in the United States. And I didn't like it because I would rather be, like, watching Neil Simon movies and Doris Day movies and things like that. And so I was the only kid in the first grade who wasn't in the brownies and 
And I just like really see myself in Neville of like not understanding that other people aren't into the same things as you. And that makes you weird. I did not understand that that was strange. And I think the joy of being an adult is finding people like you. It turns out that Ariana was, like, raised on a lot of the same movies as I was. And she will, like, stay in with me on a Sunday night and, like, watch an MGM musical that I loved when I was a kid. And for those of you who are still in your teenage years at home, it gets better and you find other nerds. <laughs> That's the nerdiest rant I've ever gone on on this podcast, pretty right? nerdy. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Casper? It reminds me of when I was very small, my dad had gone on a business trip to the German city of Stuttgart, and he'd brought me back a T-shirt. I can see it now. It was white with, oh, that's interesting, rainbow-colored lettering. Okay, maybe something's falling into place here. And, and it was very big, and I felt like having a like oversized T-shirt as a small child it felt like the sign of adulthood and like the future and now clearly all sorts of gay references. <laughs> but but there was something in this t-shirt that I was really proud of it. And like, I wouldn't wear it outdoors. I would only wear it inside. You know how as a kid you develop all those kind of rules with things that you have? Anyway, it's reminding me of that. <laughs> so Vanessa, I feel like we've learned a lot about ourselves today. <laughs> um, Let's go to step four, which is where we feel called by this text. What is it saying to us today? Loads of stuff, said Neville proudly. I guess this isn't revolutionary, but I, I feel called to, you know, when you learn about something new, to try and see it through someone's eyes who loves it. To try and imagine yourself what it would be like to be fascinated and obsessed and, and, and excited by this thing. Sometimes I look at some science things. I'm like, I don't understand this. Like, is it really worth my attention? And I'm like, no, someone has spent their life thinking about this question. How about you, Vanessa? I mean, I'm going to go off of yours, which is anything can be interesting. And so maybe the thing I want to do is choose what I'm interested in a little bit more. I mean, like, it would be really great of me to become obsessed with like how to be a great ally in conversations about race. I care about that, but I have not gotten obsessed by it and read six books about it. And instead what I do is like wait to be inspired into obsession when really like I should be choosing my obsessions. I am so good at being obsessive. Why not direct that power? I saw A Star is Born and within six hours I read two articles and listened to two podcast episodes about it. I should do that with things that I care about but that aren't necessarily, like, as shiny. Hmm. This week's voicemail is from Pieta. Hi, Ariana Casper and Vanessa. I'm Pieta, and I'm from Finland, and I just binge-listened all the episodes in a matter of two weeks or so. So I'm loving this podcast. I have a little story to tell and a blessing to give inspired by your latest episode on memory. My grandmother has Alzheimer's and is dying. She doesn't know me anymore and it is heartbreaking. As she's losing her memory, I'm trying to keep my memories of her closer to me. Little things she has given me. Like I have a scarf she wore to my parents' wedding. I try to keep it close to me whenever I miss her. I need strength or I'm sad. She was the wisest person I have ever known. Having something of hers gives me comfort. My blessing 
today is for creature. He's hoarding those things in the black house that remind him of his family, those he found dearest to him. So my blessing is for everyone who has hard time letting go of memories of those they loved, who keep saving those things that remind them of those they loved most. It's okay to try to find strength to go on from those things. I am loving this podcast. Thank you for everything and keep doing the good work. Bye. Pieter, I was so surprised when your blessing came within that beautiful voicemail. And I'm thinking of Creature in a completely different way. Ugh, does this mean I have to have sympathy for Creature? Yes. Yeah, you are gonna anyway. That's true. This is a beautiful insight and I think helps us along that path. But as we learn more about Creature, Pieta is exactly right. Like, this is an incredibly sympathetic point of view that he has. And especially that idea of how things become symbols for people, especially people who have gone and have disappeared. The other, like, sentiment, Pieta, that you got to that I just think is so beautiful is that It's easy to forget when we're looking at an elderly person, the person who they were. And I think it's so hard to both love them in their elderliness for who they are in that moment, but also for most likely the version of themselves that they would prefer to be remembered by, which is them just a few years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago. And that is a lot to hold when looking at just one person. And I think that that is the beauty of blessing, Mm. is that it's an attempt to try to see the whole person. So I just want to offer a blessing to your grandmother in who she is now and in who she was and in her having been the wisest person that you know and in now being who she is. And she's very lucky to have you. Vanessa, that's such a perfect lead into offering our blessings for today. I want to bless a character that's really only named in these pages. We don't meet him, but it's Neville's great uncle, Argie. He's the one who gives Neville this kind of unusual species of plant. And, you know, it's just another person in this constellation of heroes or adults around Neville who calls forth this love for herbology. And we know that that's going to shape him so importantly. I guess anyone who can be a mentor or a offer a kind word or or point into a direction of a good book or an interesting experience to a younger person who's struggling to find their calling or their vocation, their purpose, at least for these next few years. So a blessing for Argy and everyone who's mentoring someone today. How about you, Vanessa? Here, here. I'm going to offer again an obvious blessing, but for Luna. Hmm. And I've talked about this a little bit, but I just want to bless her for the moment in which she protects her father. Her dad is an easily mockable guy, and she is at an age in which it's just so easy to be trying to distance yourself from your parents. And the fact that she doesn't do that at all and proudly sticks by her dad, I think just shows us what courage can look like in a small way. And Luna will lead us in courageous moments, both big and small. But I think that maybe one of the reasons that this like group of students becomes her friends is because she proves herself in this moment to be a loyal person. If the first thing that we learned about Luna is that she would be willing to throw her dad under the bus, then why wouldn't she throw these other people under the bus? But it's actually a trust-building moment where she is showing herself to be a very loyal and devoted person. And it proves to be true. 
You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please support us on Patreon. There's a link on our website. We love reading your reviews on iTunes, and we're grateful if you send us a voicemail to harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Remember, we've got some live shows coming up tonight in Chicago, on the 8th of November in Austin, on the 9th of December in Boston, and then on the 16th of February in Orlando, Florida. Teamwork. This episode is produced by Ariana Nettleman, Vanessa Zoltan, and me, Casper Terkyle. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we're part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. Thank you, Pieta, for our beautiful voicemail this week. As always, to Julia Argy, Amanda Madigan, Bridget Goggin, and Stephanie Paulsell. We will talk to you all next week. He's like, dude, check out my plant, bro. <laughs> Probably not because he's English, but th- th- that is not a, <laughs> a, a, a dude. <laughs> he's like super not dudely. Nerd bros are a thing. They're just like nerds about surfing. Maybe. <laughs>